0: I'm Rachel Dunstan Muller, with stories of curious people, places, and events from the margins of history. If Belinda Mulrooney's childhood taught her anything, it was how to fight. Belinda was born in 1872 in a small Irish village in County Sligo. Her father immigrated to the U.S. shortly after her birth, and her mother followed when Belinda was just two years old. That left Belinda in her grandmother's care, to be raised with uncles who were only a few years older than she was. Her uncles treated her like a younger brother, which taught her to stand up for herself. As a child, Belinda had a four-mile walk to school, and every student was responsible for bringing two sods of turf to help heat the one-room schoolhouse. But one morning when she was seven, one of her sods fell into the river she was crossing. She had no desire to go all the way back to fetch another one, of course, so she simply broke the remaining sod in half and carried each half under her arms with the good ends showing. But her schoolteacher learned of this little deception, and as punishment, he caned her in front of the entire school. Belinda was stunned, but she refused to cry. Instead, she picked up one of the sods and threw it with all her might, knocking the schoolteacher's glasses right off his nose. Despite the occasional misadventure, Belinda felt quite happy in her grandmother's care. But then, when she was just shy of 13, her parents sent for her. They'd had two more children since immigrating to America, and they wanted help with her younger siblings. Belinda was devastated. She had no memory of her father, hadn't seen her mother since she was two, but no one asked her for her input. Life in America was far worse than she'd feared. She'd traded her lovely Irish countryside for an ugly Pennsylvania coal town, traded her privileges as the youngest in her grandmother's home for the extra work and responsibility of an oldest child. And school? School was a misery. She was constantly being teased for her thick Irish brogue, She held her tongue in class, but once the bell rang, her fists would fly. Eventually, the teasing got so bad that she refused to go to school at all. Secretly, Belinda was planning her escape. She was determined to raise enough money to buy passage back to Ireland, and so she started looking for opportunities wherever she could, beginning with huckleberries. Now... There were other children in town picking berries for eight cents a quart, but Belinda was the berry champion. Everyone else was afraid to go up to the hills where the rattlesnakes were, but that's where the best bushes were as well. Belinda wasn't afraid of any snake. She'd wait until they were coiled to strike, then snap off their heads with a crooked stick but huckleberries were just the beginning. She convinced the owner of a coal wagon to hire her to drive his mule team, even though girls weren't supposed to work at the mines. She made sure she was the best worker the wagon owner had ever had, so he'd let her stay and work in secret. Then she hid all the money she earned in a coffee can buried in her backyard. When she was seventeen... She made her break. Instead of returning to Ireland, however, she told her mother she was going to visit an aunt in Philadelphia without telling her it was a one-way trip. For two years, Belinda earned $3 a week as a nursemaid. Then when she had a sufficient nest egg, she gave her notice and headed to Chicago and the World's Exposition. By this point, Belinda had managed to save $600. The equivalent of about $17,000 today. And she was ready to go into business. She purchased a small lot near the fairgrounds, hired a contractor to put up a building on the front half, and then sold that building for a tidy profit. She continued to collect rent from the back half of the lot and purchased and ran a small restaurant nearby. By the time the Chicago World's Fair ended, she turned her $600 into $8,000—a good sum of money for a 20-year-old woman in 1893. Her next stop was San Francisco, but here Belinda's luck took a turn. She had lofty ambitions, sinking $7,000 into fixing up a leased restaurant and rooming house— No sooner were the renovations complete than the building burned to the ground. The owner made a tidy profit from the insurance claim while Belinda lost everything. Now hold on. Let's just let this sink in. Belinda had spent years working towards this moment. She'd battled rattlesnakes for huckleberries worked illegally as a mule driver, served as a nursemaid, speculated in real estate, purchased and run a small restaurant. And now, in a single night, all her efforts, her years of labor had gone up in flames. But if Belinda had learned anything, it was how to pick herself up and dust herself off. All right, back to our story ever since crossing the Atlantic, she'd been drawn to water, and so she decided that she would look for a position on the steamships that were going up the coast to Alaska. And so what if they had no work for a woman? Belinda made such a nuisance of herself in the port steward's office, returning over and over and over again— that in desperation he finally found her a temporary place as the first female steward on the Seattle-to-Alaska run. Belinda did not take this opportunity for granted. She worked like two men, making herself indispensable. And it worked. By the time they got back to Seattle, she had herself a permanent position. Belinda was delighted to be on a ship. But she was never going to be content just collecting a wage. Her first business move was to turn her remaining $400 into walking sticks and steamer chairs, which she sold for a tidy profit to the tourists on board. Next, she took orders for general merchandise from families who lived in Alaska. She would purchase their orders while her ship was docked in Seattle— then pay the freight to bring the orders up the coast. Within six months of starting this side hustle, Belinda had the heaviest bill of lading on the entire ship. Understandably, the merchants in Juno were not happy with Belinda's competition, and they put considerable pressure on the steamship company to rein in its over-ambitious employee. Instead, Belinda quit the steamship run altogether and set up shop in Juneau herself. And business proved to be quite satisfactory, until Belinda heard the rumors of a gold strike in the Yukon. There was no question where she needed to be after that. Like many others before and after her, Belinda failed her first attempt to cross the dreaded Chilkoot Pass. But she learned from that failure, and she was more prepared the next time. She put together what she needed, hired people who were familiar with the trail, and on April first, 1897, they landed in Daea. She hired native packers and sled dogs to help transport her 2,000 pounds, but she pulled her own weight as well. It took them 30 round trips to get everything up the steep pass, down the other side, and across Lake Lindeman, which was still frozen. At the head of the next lake, Lake Bennett, they set up camp while the men built a boat from the standing timber. Now most of the other parties at Lake Bennett chose to wait for the ice to break up before launching. It seemed the logical thing to do. But Belinda's party put their two boats on sleds and then ice sailed across the lake. This one decision— meant they were able to beat all the other Stampeders to the goldfields. They managed to survive the treacherous white waters that led to Dawson, and arrived in a community that was still no more than a few rough buildings and a scattering of tents. After spending everything she had on supplies and the merchandise she planned to sell, Belinda had just twenty-five cents left to her name. Well... A quarter was useless in Dawson. It wouldn't buy a crust of bread. So Belinda tossed the coin into the river and vowed she'd start clean. Now, Belinda's party had traveled downriver on two scratch-built boats. And the first thing she did once they'd reached land, other than throwing her quarter away, was to offer to buy those two boats, on credit, of course. You see she had a plan. With the men's help, she took the boats apart and then reused the lumber and nails to construct two dirt-floor huts, one for herself and her own belongings, and a second one to shelter the outfits that belonged to the others while they explored the creeks, looking for claims to stake. Then, with her shelter established, Belinda set out to make her own fortune. But When she looked around and saw how the other women in camp were dressed, she began to have serious misgivings. It was all mucklucks and men's shirts everywhere she looked. Well, this was all very practical, but it posed a problem for Belinda. You see, to save weight on the trail, she'd bought the lightest merchandise she could think of. Silk. Silk dresses, petticoats, nightgowns, undergarments— all carefully packed in watertight canisters. But as she looked around, it was clear that her merchandise was ridiculously impractical. She needn't have worried. Impractical or not, the miners' wives had been separated from luxury for so long they couldn't get enough of Belinda's beautiful silk. And they didn't care how much gold dust Belinda charged them. Before long, her little store was sold out. But Belinda was just getting warmed up. With her profits from that venture in hand, she promptly turned to the next one. She bought more boats as they arrived in Dawson and paid men to turn them into furnished cabins for the stampeders streaming in. She started a restaurant and used all her bartering skills to keep it stocked with food. Then, only a month after her arrival in Dawson, Belinda turned her attention to the Forks, about fifteen miles away at the confluence of the Eldorado and Bonanza Creeks. There was no settlement at the Forks, but it was the center of all the mines around which made it the perfect place to build a roadhouse, in Belinda's opinion. The men told her she was crazy, but she went ahead anyway. She got herself a poor half-starved mule, the only beast of burden she could find, and started hauling logs to the site. Within a month, it was built, a two-story rectangular building with large south-facing windows, It had a bar and a dining room on the ground floor, tiers of bunk beds on the second floor, and kennels for sled dogs out back. She named it the Grand Forks Hotel, and it was a roaring success from the moment she opened the doors. And the miners who'd laughed at her when she began became her best customers. But Belinda still had businesses back in Dawson as well and when she got tired of making the fifteen-mile trek back and forth, she convinced some of the mine owners to join her as investors in a new venture, the Yukon Telegraph and Telephone Syndicate, with equipment brought in from over the Chilkoot Pass. But as well as things were going at this point— she even had a few claims on the creeks— her next goal was to build a three-story hotel in Dawson— as grand as anything they had down in San Francisco. The old-timers said it couldn't be done, heating a hotel with three stories in that climate. But Belinda set the bar even higher. She said not only would she do it, but she'd get it done by that same summer. And she wagered $10,000 to back up her words. To ensure that her workers were equally invested in the outcome, She urged them to make their own bets as well. Her strategy worked. The three-story Fairview Hotel was open for business by the summer of 1898, and it was a smashing success. It had a saloon, a gourmet restaurant, luxury rooms on the second floor for society folks, and bunks on the third floor for the miners and old sourdoughs. And, true to her promise— It had a redesigned boiler system to heat the whole building. But Belinda's beautiful hotel was still missing glass for its windows and some other furnishings, so she set out in a small boat with a few helpers and $30,000 to get what she needed from the outside before winter set in. She ordered what she needed in Skagway and hired a man to get her goods over the Chilkoot Pass on his twenty-two mules— at forty cents a pound. But someone else offered Joe Brooks more money to transport a load of whiskey. When Belinda learned that he had simply dumped her first load at the head of the summit and then gone off to take care of the new contract, she was livid. But there was a clause in the contract that said Belinda could take possession of Brooks' mules if he failed to deliver on his end. So, not one to back down from a fight, she promptly hired the toughest packers she could find, and together they rode out to meet Brooke's foreman on borrowed horses. When the foreman wouldn't read the contract or surrender the mules voluntarily, she pulled out a gun. The foreman didn't have a weapon close at hand himself, so he could only watch helplessly as the packers Belinda had hired unloaded his mules and led them away. Belinda and her companions didn't waste any time getting their stuff over the summit, and though they had to endure a few more misadventures along the way, they made it back to Dawson, with the windows and new furniture, before the winter set in. It was at this point— that belinda's fortune took a turn enter charles eugene carbono carbono walked into the fairview hotel and into belinda's life looking quite dapper in his tailored clothes with spats over his patent leather shoes he claimed to be a french count and he was representing a group of investors from london who were interested in acquiring and mining klondike claims as Belinda would soon learn, Carbono liked representing other people's money, and he had no qualms about using that money to keep himself in the little luxuries that he believed a man of his position required. Belinda's friends tried to warn her against Carbono, but she fell under the spell of his continental manners and his apparent flair for business. Sorry. Just one more interruption. But seriously, why would a woman as shrewd and headstrong as Belinda fall for such a self-serving dandy? Well, maybe love really is blind. And maybe there weren't many prospects in Dawson, at least not the kind of men that Belinda would consider her equal. Or maybe it was all about timing— You see, hotels weren't the only thing on Belinda's mind at this point. She'd been thinking a lot about children, about starting a family and settling down with the fortune she'd made. And Carbineau he just showed up at the right moment, or the wrong moment, depending on your perspective. All right, back to our story. Carboneau courted Belinda for two years, and finally convinced her to marry him on October 1st, 1900. But as Belinda's friends had predicted, what followed was a disaster. Carboneau was not a French count. He was a con man from Quebec, and his true affection was for Belinda's money. Within a few years, their marriage was a shambles. Thanks to Carboneau's convoluted business dealings, Belinda had to sell both her hotels and ended up with almost nothing left in her name. She'd gone from being one of the wealthiest entrepreneurs in the Klondike to one of the poorest. But she wasn't entirely a lamb led to the slaughter. She'd managed to reconcile with her parents and siblings over the years— and before marrying, she'd placed some of her fortune in real estate and trusts in their names. She was able to use some of that trust money to make a new start after the divorce. She staked a few claims in Alaska with two women partners and opened the Dome City Bank with her sister. But even after the divorce, Belinda couldn't quite escape the taint of Carbono's bad luck or the entanglement of his lawsuits— And so in 1909, she decided to leave the North for good. She purchased 20 acres of farming land in Yakima, Washington, planted a peach and apple orchard, and built a house with two towers big enough for her entire family, which neighbors christened the Carboneau Castle. But the orchard wasn't as successful as she'd hoped, and in 1924, she mortgaged the castle and bought two lots on a hilltop in Seattle. She built a house with two suites for her parents and herself, a second house with two suites for her siblings, and a small house to rent out. Eventually, she had to sell the castle altogether. Belinda's life in Seattle was nothing like her life in the North. She cared for her parents until their death, worked as a seamstress to get through the Great Depression, and then as a scaler in a shipyard during World War II. In fact, scraping rust and corrosion from steel boats suited her so well that she continued this work even after the war, right into her early seventies. When she was eighty-five, she moved across the street into the Mount St. Vincent nursing home. She signed over her remaining property to the nuns, in exchange for their care for the rest of her life. And it wasn't so bad. She had a sweeping view of the Seattle waterfront from her fifth-floor window. She got to read all the westerns and mysteries she wanted. The nuns even turned a blind eye to the whiskey she had smuggled in and the two cigarettes she enjoyed every day. Belinda lived to be ninety-five, but even after her death, the universe still had one final joke to pull at her expense. Belinda was many things during her time on the earth. She was a pioneer. She built cabins, restaurants, hotels, even a castle. She founded the town of Grand Forks and helped establish several others. She was a gold prospector and a successful speculator. She helped establish telephone and water services in the Klondike. She created and managed a bank, planted an orchard, and worked in a shipyard into her seventies. But her death certificate gave Belinda the one occupation she'd spent her whole life avoiding. It said she was a housewife. As an afternote. Belinda inspired at least two fictionalized versions of herself. You can watch the first in the Discovery Channel miniseries, Klondike, and the second in the Irish series, Anne Klondike, released internationally as Dominion Creek. My primary source for this episode was the book Staking Her Claim, The Life of Belinda Mulrooney, Klondike and Alaska Entrepreneur, by Melanie J. Mayer and Robert N. Diamond. If you enjoyed this episode, please join me for my next one. And if you have any feedback, you can find me on Facebook at Hintertales, Stories from the Margins of History. You can also email me at racheldm at shaw.ca. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-D-M at shaw.ca. This episode of Hintertales was written, narrated, and produced by Rachel Dunstan Muller, with music and sound effects by zapsplat.com. Learn more about my work at racheldunstanmuller.com.